0: David Estrada. I had a spinal cord injury in 1995 when I was 23 years old. I was um, riding my motorcycle home from work and was struck by a car in an intersection. I was rendered unconscious and when I came to I tried getting up but I couldn't and realized that um, I was paralyzed. I think I was operated on for like six hours. Later found out that I had shattered my fourth thoracic vertebrae and pieces of the bone went into my spinal cord, causing permanent damage. So I have been, for the past almost 28 years, a full-time wheelchair user and uh, unable to uh, walk you know, or have any sensation below my chest.
1: Welcome to Finding Strength, the Spalding Rehabilitation Podcast, where we'll try to connect the dots between rehabilitation research and the people who are most impacted. This production is a collaboration between the Model Systems and the Rehabilitation Outcomes Center at Spalding. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series inspired by the article, From Survival to Survivorship. Framing Traumatic Injury as a Chronic Condition by Drs. Juan Herrera Escobar and Jeffrey Schneider, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August 2022. We're joined today by Dr. Herrera Escobar. Juan Herrera Escobar, MD, MPH, is a physician scientist from Columbia with advanced training in trauma outcomes research methodology. Herrera Escobar serves as research director of long-term outcomes in trauma at the Brigham and Women's Center for Surgery and Public Health. His academic interests are in studying the long-term physical, mental, and social health consequences of traumatic injuries, as well as in the implementation of trauma registries and trauma systems design. We're also joined by the voice you heard at the top of the episode, David Estrada, JD. He holds many hats across Spalding, but one hat is as program manager of the Spalding New England Regional Spinal Cord Injury Model System and the Exercise for Persons with Disabilities program. He represents United Spinal Association as a peer mentor, board member, and former executive director of its greater Boston chapter, as well as a national chapter liaison. Living with a spinal cord injury and a wheelchair user for the past 27 years, he has focused on consumer-led advocacy, locally and nationally to promote high-quality services for better healthcare management and access to resources for the SCI community. For nearly a decade, Dave was an Athletes with Disabilities Coordinator for the Boston Marathon and continues to promote adaptive sports participation. I'm your host, Shanali Gaudino. I'm an occupational therapist and I've been working at Spalding for over 10 years. I'm the Administrative Director at the Rehabilitation Outcome Center at Spalding, and I'm on a mission to build bridges amongst our community of clinicians, researchers, and people with lived rehabilitation experience. So uh, I want to actually just start with, Dave, this entire podcast was your idea. You know that, right?
0: I do. <laughs> uh, and and I'm glad that you're part of it.
1: Because
0: <laughs> uh, I've never done it before. And,
1: <laughs> and now I have like a new full-time job right. unintentionally. Yes. <laughs> um, so we're going to be podcasters now. But what was the idea that you were trying to achieve?
0: The I think the idea was and always has been, how do we demystify medical journal articles, especially geared towards the people they're written about who usually never read them. And just to kind of bridge that gap between the researcher and the population that the researcher is studying and reporting on, the other part of me wants to attract the population into the environment in terms of research and care and treatment within the healthcare system. Because there, as I mentioned, there are a multitude of barriers to the healthcare system after you have a traumatic injury. And my feeling is that the more people with those traumatic injuries working inside the healthcare system will eliminate those barriers much more quickly.
1: If you caught our first episode, you learned about the burn injury model system from Jeff Schneider. I asked Dave to define the model system in his own words since he works for the spinal cord injury model system. Right. For people who are listening, (laughs) our future listeners, what is the model system?
0: So it's a longitudinal study that collects data on people with spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, and burn injury. I work in the spinal cord injured population, and what we do is we enroll patients before they leave the hospital. We ask them a questionnaire, but where you live, where you're being discharged are you going back to live at home and is your home accessible? Are you going back to work? There are psych social questionnaires as well. Are you de- depression scale? And then we follow up with them a year later and ask them a list of similar questions and also more, like such as pain, have you had any an overnight stay in the hospital over the past year? Um, uh, how much caregiving um, do you need per week? Um, Is it paid caregiver assistance? So we're trying to collect as much data as we can in terms of how people are living after spinal cord injury. And that, in turn, can lead to changes in policy as well as clinical care.
2: Yeah, I think um, everything that we want to improve needs to be measured in some way. If we just think about athletics, I don't remember at the top of my head what was the record of the first marathon that was ever run, but I think it would be probably around close to three hours. We've been able to decrease that by almost an hour in in the past few decades. And the only reason why that has been able to happen is because we're measuring constantly the results and get better at the things that we're not doing right, whether that means improving the training, regimen, etc. And and I think we should apply the same framework to what we're doing specifically for trauma. You know, that means tracking outcomes for patients, but not only short-term outcomes like mortality or complications or readmissions, but go beyond that and say, well, what happens to the patient six months out, a year out, five years out, even for the entire lifespan?
1: Perspective piece by Drs. Herrera-Escobar and Schneider outlined not only the current challenges in long-term outcomes of trauma care, but also a recipe for solutions. They write, providing comprehensive care for people with traumatic injuries requires a robust trauma system. Current trauma systems have inadequate follow-up processes to meet the psychosocial and rehabilitation needs of injury survivors, and they often aren't set up to address the critical role of social determinants of health in recovery. An important step toward improving outcomes and recovery experiences among people with traumatic injuries could be to classify such injuries as chronic conditions. I asked Juan to tell us more about what inspired this article.
2: This is an article that Um, came up as a product of exactly of what Dave was just saying, and it's collaboration and making sure we were sharing information that we were learning from our own internal study here at the brigand, which is called the Functional Outcomes and Recovery After Trauma Emergencies Project. And then the the team all all over at Spalding, we wanted to highlight the two things. One was the tremendous burden that trauma patients suffered in the long term, and, and, and just to kind of put a very specific example, firearm injuries. Whenever we see a, a mass shooting or an event that involves um, firearm injuries, the immediate attention goes to how many people die as a consequence of, of the event. And that's, of course, important. And, and it's a significant piece of the, of the picture, but it's not the only one. And what happens to those people who survive those events these survivors are now facing a completely different life from every single aspect, from their physical health, their mental health, their social interactions, and, and that's exactly the point that we wanted to really highlight in that piece, is this is a big problem. Traumatic injury is a condition that is causing a significant amount of impairment. It costs a lot of money to the health system, and also to the society overall. I feel the value of trauma systems to society is to be able to bring people who have sustained traumatic injuries to the closest to their baseline as possible. And I think we're failing in doing that. So, so that first point was that. And then the second part was, like I said, try to propose some ideas or solutions or next steps. And. And the way to tackle them is coming together as a community, researchers, clinicians, patients, advocacy group, politicians, everyone in the same tent. I think that starts even with defining what's traumatic injury.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
2: And that's probably been one of the causes why we have not come together as
0: we should, is what's the definition? It is difficult because, you know, when I go to the dentist. I feel like it's a traumatic event, (laughs) you know? Like, I get nervous, I I do not like the dentist. Fortunately, I've only had a couple surgeries in my lifetime, but like, Diana, who you interviewed prior, she's had over 150 surgeries because of her burn injury. She told me, I was just like, holy cow. I don't know how a human being can go through that much, what I consider trauma, Mm -hmm. like all those surgeries. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, with that, it's different, differing degrees.
1: We should look up, like, the dictionary definition. of Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's actually one that I found that I liked a lot. It's from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Agency,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. SAMSAM. And they have this definition that individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on mm. in the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or a spiritual well-being.
1: Or, not necessarily mm-hmm. and. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or. So, or. In, but using that definition, then probably every single person on this earth has oh, some yeah. claim Trying to, to trauma, trauma, right? Yes. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And then, then the next question is how do you... How you categorize it and then treat it if if each person is different and unique in their trauma traumatic experiences. Yeah.
1: Juan, you worked in Colombia. Were you born in Colombia?
2: Yes, yes I was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so how does and you you treated it in Colombia so how I don't know if you have a thought on how this compares the systems that are available in Colombia.
2: Yes, that's an interesting question. There's definitely um, a huge amount of burden in terms of traumatic injuries in the country for several reasons, and motor vehicle crashes, interpersonal violence are rampant in, in the country, and that has led to a unfortunately increasingly growing population with disabilities in the Mm -hmm. country i think that there are some areas of the country that they have become really good at treating patients in the hospital unfortunately thanks to the volume to the high volume surgeons gets to have a ton of patients but there is minimal follow-up but there is uh, i think an opportunity you know when certain places or certain hospitals start changing that. Unfortunately, this is not happening at the system level. It is more at the hospital level. So I had the experience to work in a hospital in Cali, which is called Fundacion Valle del Lili, and they are doing a great job actually in both treating trauma patients and then also making sure that the patient has a smooth transition and after discharge and kind of thinking through the patient as a whole. And actually, that's, that's an, uh, an important point about this whole perspective that we published and that we want to change is the continuity of care. And how do we make trauma not a acute event where the patient is treated at the hospital and then everything's over? But rather that's just the first step. And the common feedback we got from the patients part of the of the research studies is that care at the hospital was great, was terrific, was fantastic but then I felt alone when I left the hospital. I didn't know what to do, what were the next steps. And that's the part where I think work hard to make sure the patient feels is a continuous care.
0: Um, I spent three months in the hospital and immediately discovered how difficult it is to navigate the complex health care system uh, that we have here in the United States uh, as a person living with a disability. Uh, the majority of health insurance plans dictate that someone with a spinal cord injury must go through their primary care physician for all their medical needs and the fact is that most primary care physicians don't know a lot about spinal cord injury or other neurological disorders and it's based on the simple fact that they're not taught in medical school about um, treating people with uh, spinal cord injury or other neurological conditions. Um, Doctors called physiatrists specialize in treating spinal cord injury, but you need a referral from your primary care physician to see one, which creates an immediate barrier to accessing proper care and treatment for anyone living with a spinal cord injury.
1: Dave's story highlighted a lot of the same themes we heard from Diana in our first episode and Juan's experiences in Colombia. We need better transitions of care. People who experience traumatic injuries often feel that discharging home from the hospital is like being set adrift at sea without a map. While we still struggle to effectively support people during transitions of care, Dave talks about how we have made some large strides, especially in our cultural attitudes towards mental illness, so much so that we are now in dire need of more trauma-informed mental health providers.
0: Things are so much different now than they were when I was first injured. Trauma care was, there in terms of a psych psychologist would come into my room and try to talk to me (laughs) and i didn't want to talk to the psychologist so it was there and 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 even back then i think compared to now like i wasn't put on any antidepressants or anything like that because i didn't really know about the injury back then or what was going to happen and you know your whole mentality after a spinal cord injury is like I need to walk again and i need to walk out of this hospital um it wasn't like on the minute details of you know this is you know this is how you use a wheelchair this is how you're gonna navigate the world from now on and this is how your your self-care
1: um minute details
0: <laughs> right right and, and you're not you know you're not thinking about that yeah. um you know you're just thinking about recovery so there's a there's a lot of a lot of different things and and again I'm optimistic because <laughs> I've got my own longitudinal, personal longitudinal, you know, aspect of of how things have changed over, over you know, almost three decades.
1: And you said that at the beginning you had a psychologist come and talk to you. Did you ever get sort of follow-up care from anyone?
0: No, from I, I kind of refused to talk to the psychologist because I was just sort of, I, you know, for me... I knew what had happened, and I kind of—not that I accepted it right away—but I was like, "Okay, I'm going to do the best I can to recover, make whatever recovery I can." And I was pretty miserable in the hospital, um, and probably needed that mental health service, but I didn't. And again, just being a male who was born in 1972, <laughs> I was like, "You know, you don't—that—that that was never part of." and then juan mentioned the hispanic culture depends on which culture you're where you're brought up sometimes they're more averse to uh, mental health services so it's it's difficult there's not enough mental health providers to provide the specific things that we need
1: yeah there's not enough mental health providers period let alone the specific uh challenges that some of these populations really need right i mean I'm, i'm a long time advocate of getting a therapist i've been seeing a therapist for five five years, six years now. Um, are there, do you have mental health needs or exercises that you engage in today still?
0: No, I I actually don't. And I like, it's funny because I, I work a lot. And for me, my mental health strain was working too much. And I didn't realize until COVID hit exercises, my mental health, um, yeah, channel. Like I remember one when
2: I was speaking with a Spanish-speaking patient, and he has go through a traumatic event, and then this was six months out, and the patient is screened positive for depression, anxiety, PTSD. Every single mental health condition that we screen for, he is screened positive for. When talking to the patient, the patient said, "Yes, I know I need help. I need this support." So. He was aware of that and he has tried to get that support. But then the problem was actually not getting a mental health provider, but it was getting a mental health provider that speaks Spanish. And the solution of the system was, you know, well, we can put you an interpreter in the room. And he was like, but, you know, I don't feel comfortable talking about all these different things with, it's already uncomfortable to talk, you know, with someone else in a room. Now you're asking me to do this. Through
0: a second person, that that doesn't work. I
1: mm-hmm.
0: cool of what Juan just said. Um, we have the same problem. When you're inpatient, you can get mental health care, but when you leave the hospital, it's more difficult, and also when you do find a provider, they typically know nothing about spinal cord injury. So a lot of feedback that we get from when we we're doing support groups or peer mentoring is like, yeah, I found somebody, but I don't feel comfortable because they don't know what I'm really about, spinal cord injury or what I'm going through, which I find is fascinating because it's a trained mental health professional that that the person they're trying to help can't relate to. <laughs> you know? Um, so it, it, it is a problem. Uh, a few years after my injury, I became a certified peer mentor uh, through a national organization that um, advocates on behalf of people living with spinal cord injury. And every year, uh, this organization goes to Washington, D.C. to visit legislators and discuss essential legislation that affects the spinal cord injury population. Uh, We tell our stories to federal legislators and advocate for legislation that directly affects people living with spongebob injury. In 2022, we focused on uh, the Air Carriers Access Act amendment, which would provide accessible bathrooms and more space inside commercial airplanes for wheelchair users.
1: and Juan both see the importance of finding our commonalities, learning to speak the same language, and joining forces to achieve our shared goals in addressing universal social health needs. Juan explains that those personal factors can have more to do with outcomes than the severity of the initial injury. And these things add up. According to the article, quote, fatal and non-fatal injuries reportedly cost the United States $4.2 trillion in 2019 including three hundred and twenty seven billion in medical care, sixty-nine billion in lost work, and three point eight trillion in value of statistical life and quality of life losses.
2: Uh, there's a, a fun anecdote about when we were writing the piece and we were putting together some of the initial numbers that you know that are in kind of in the intro of the perspective and and we both thought that was a typo, that it, it was unbelievable how we were spending that amount of money. And we, like, triple-checked that when we submitted to the journal. Then they asked us, like, can you send a reference for this thing? So it's, it's striking. So I think we, we, we have an argument from both the patient aspect, the quality of life, what we're doing to improve the patient's recovery and also
0: for the economic stability of the system. I'm also involved in what's called a Disability Task Force through Mass General Brigham and one of the things that we're, we're trying to identify where we can do a better job in electronic medical records identifying disability. So we're trying to do provide better services to those with disabilities based upon their medical records.
2: Yeah, uh, And I think that's one of the key gaps in terms of the data that we have I think we've gotten better in collecting outcomes that are more aligned with the patient needs. And so things like quality of life, the mental health screenings, pain, return to work, etc. we're, I think, pretty good now in terms of that type of data, but then on the other side, we need to get better at understanding or collecting data on the things that predict those outcomes. Mm-hmm and social determinants of health uh, are probably at at the top. Because if we have the data, then I think we'll we'll have a better picture of to treat patients and then understand all the complex relationships that happen between those those two things. A common thing is what's the role of the clinician and what's the role of the hospital in addressing this type of things? And ultimately, if we want to improve the patient's health, we need to do that as well. You know, we asked physicians whether, you know, they want to prescribe this type of services to patients. They all, most of them agreed. 85% of of physicians, like four out of five, would say that they would prescribe all these things if possible.
1: They would prescribe things like transportation and better food and... (laughs)
2: Exactly, like the top things would be... Exercise. Fitness program, nutritional food, transportation assistance, employment assistance, adult education, housing assistance. In contrast, 80% of them are not confident in their capacity to address these needs. So it's, mm-hmm. it's important that we start shifting the treatment from the specific symptoms, right, like the pain, etc., and do that together with addressing the social needs.
1: Yeah, it makes me wonder though whether or not Physicians, or what type of physician is the right vehicle for us to deliver those solutions? Right. It needs to also be um, other disciplines. Right. We've got social work, occupational therapists. To be honest with you, I think are underutilized mm-hmm. in that yes. in agree. that space.
0: As we become more inclusive, things will change. It's just it's going to take time. Yeah, and actually, so one of our
2: projects is funded by the United Against Racism initiative. So the name of the project is the Non-English Speaking Trauma Survivors Pathway. So it's the NEST pathway. And the whole purpose of that pathway was we need to do something to help non-English speaking patients navigate better the healthcare system. So we started with Spanish speaking patients and there was three interventions that we started. The first one was to Uh, implement universal screening for social determinants of health, for um, assessing the risk for developing poor outcomes in the long term. And the second piece, which I think is probably the most critical one, is having a community health worker that kind of bridges that transition from the hospital to the community, and someone that they feel is part of their team, part of their culture, so so we were lucky to have Anna who is our community health worker helping on um, Spanish speaking patients and and navigate through all that process. And and the third part is giving the patients some tools so that they can um better navigate the system. So one of them is it's actually it's called the Genie app which is is like the Uber for translation services. So it's Accessing a translator in real time, just twenty seconds, wow. hit a button, and then they're connected with someone who's sitting somewhere else in the world, mm-hmm. and translate, um, you know, for the patient. So, and, and the whole concept of this pathway is, specifically, what Anna is doing for the patients. We think of as framing the traumatic injury as an opportunity to change or impact the patient life, in their environment, in their social conditions, in everything. In order to tell the trauma event, like no one wants to have one. But if it already happened, let's use it as an opportunity to fix many things that have not been fixed. And it's connecting patients with multiple services. And actually some of these services, is interesting because it's not that they don't exist. They are already there. Mm -hmm. But patients don't know they are available. Mm And just having someone that connects them with those resources is, is making, I think, a, a significant impact.
1: That's one of the biggest problems in this country. I mean, we do talk about how there's a lack of continuity in Colombia. We have a lot of good programming in this country, mm-hmm. but people don't know it exists. There's, it's almost like there's too much, and we don't know how to point people to it. But I'll be interested to hear what people's reactions are to that idea that trauma is like the gateway to being able to help you in all aspects in all of these different areas of your life because you know i could i could imagine somebody saying well i'm not going to pay for fixing this person's entire life but what we know is that it's already happening in the other direction the same trauma for me someone with resources is gonna affect me much less than the same exact trauma to somebody who doesn't have the same resources or education or background as I do, right? The same exact injury. So if you're giving both of us the same exact intervention, you're gonna have different outcomes. So we have to give a different intervention to somebody who doesn't have the same resources or has different barriers, meet meet the barriers that exist.
0: Uh, and like other chronic conditions such as diabetes or heart disease there are high risks of secondary complications that all individuals living with spinal cord injury experience which come in the form of infections bone fractures low blood pressure chronic pain and skin ulcers trying to maintain your very best uh, health after spinal cord injury is somewhat paramount for survival Uh, Many people with these secondary complications, like myself, uh, work, go to school, and support a family. Uh, The majority of individuals living with spinal cord injury need custom wheelchairs to get around in accessible and inaccessible environments. And many individuals rely on caregivers to maintain their independence. Uh, One other major factor that catches up with you more quickly than the general population is aging with a spinal cord injury. I just turned 51 this year, uh, and again, it's been almost 28 years since my injury. My body has been slowly breaking down, but at an accelerated rate compared to my peers without a spinal cord injury. While there are more exercise and recreational opportunities for the spinal cord injury population than there ever have before, There's no prescribed protocol for aging with a spinal cord injury. And many people still don't have access or time to pursue independent exercise or recreation.
1: I worked for several years in Spaulding's skilled nursing facility and saw firsthand how unprepared most of us are to deal with the complications of aging. Dave's story shows us how that mental block, which is maybe just part of human nature, is even thornier for people with spinal cord injury. Aging.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of finally being recognized. Jeez, I had a good friend pass away, good friend with a spinal cord injury pass away last so last year, the year before. I just went to a wake of another good friend of mine with a spinal cord injury. A lot of it is just, it's system breakdown, right? So, you know, we, we all know like your skin is more um, vulnerable. Everything becomes more vulnerable as you age. And it's just compounded with the spinal cord injury with sitting in the chair all day again, not being able to stand or, or maybe not being able to exercise. I know it's, there are papers in medical journals, from the model systems about aging with spinal cord injury. So if somebody has an injury at the age of 20, if they don't have a spinal cord injury, their life expectancy is up to like 60. If they do have a spinal cord injury and it's a high level injury, it's it's about 10 years from the injury and then it just increases with the with lower level of injury. You know, I've been completely independent because I'm a T3 paraplegic and I have Function, full use of my upper body. Um, so I'm pretty much completely independent. I know there will come a point where, and I can like transfer out of my chair onto the floor and get back up in my chair um, just using certain techniques without being able to use my legs. Um, but I've, I'm starting to like think about when that's not going to be possible anymore and when I may have to use a, a power wheelchair so it's things like that and like that comes that also brings along like gee am i gonna what am am i gonna be depressed when that happens you know like the mental health aspect of it not only the physical aspect but the mental health aspect
1: in theory that's what the model systems is going to help us sort of define that trajectory of what's going on in people's lives as they age right?
0: right yeah and then you add everything onto that like as you age you know Heart disease, uh, diabetes, so it just kind of compounds. It'll, it'll compound over, over time. Uh, for the past six or seven years, I've been involved with the spinal cord injury model systems research, um, and one of the many studies that have been done is a study that people with spinal cord injuries should stand. We spend most of the time in our wheelchairs and staying healthy, uh, which includes standing, is essential for our population. Uh, It's beneficial for bone health and maintaining blood pressure, amongst other things. After a spinal cord injury, a person using a wheelchair sits all day until they go to bed and technology has brought about wheelchairs that can enable individuals to stand. However, they cost more than a standard wheelchair and insurers won't pay for them because they're not considered a medical necessity. So most individuals with spinal cord injury are denied reimbursement for a standing wheelchair and relegated to sitting most of their lives, which is detrimental to anyone's body if done for extended periods of time.
1: This example from Dave is one of so many stories about how rehabilitation research can propel us forward, particularly when the central aims are fully aligned with the needs of the community that's being served.
2: We tend to focus a lot on the arguments and why is that important from clinician's perspective or the hospital perspective, why that data is important to them but not as much of why is that important to the patient. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the key points there is just to improve the patient-provider conversation in terms of having clear expectations of what's the recovery gonna look like. The first question that the patient have when they are at the office is when I'm gonna be able to do this activity that I used to do in the past or how it's gonna look like in the next six months, year and so on. So we should be able to answer those questions. And the answer to those questions should be informed by robust data and not just the experience of that particular clinician. We need the data to do that.
1: Do you have some specific examples of how you've seen us be able to collect big data and use that to change a specific policy or care approach?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, one example through the model system is um, a study called... Equate and it's its equity and quality in assistive technology for individuals with spinal cord injury. Equate has been going on for I think oh, almost 15 years. It's a questionnaire and an interview about um, assistive technology. Uh, it's more specifically, it's wheelchair-based. Uh, so people who are use, using wheelchairs, they make the model, any like failures or repairs that they've they've done or had to have done and as I mentioned we went to Capitol Hill in 2022 to talk about the standing portion of the wheelchair so this concrete data information has been used to implement policy change and approach uh, legislators so that we can have better equipment Mm -hmm. but there's always it's always a constant battle because it's it's about money and we need our wheelchairs to live independently and technology has come a long way wheelchairs are extremely lightweight now they're extremely reliable Um, but now we're at this point where wheelchairs enable you to stand and insurance companies don't want to reimburse for it or cms doesn't want to reimburse for it so we're always continuously advocating for better reimbursements for equipment that that we need and will improve our quality of life. Dave, I'm actually curious, what are your thoughts on, or
2: how can we increase our presence in Congress
0: and how we can become better at advocating for traumatic injuries? You can do this through the government websites or any like advocacy, um, nonprofit advocacy organization. And you can easily type in where you live it will tell you who your legislators are, and you can write to your legislator. So, and all the emails that legislators receive are read. Anybody can do it. So, and and I always thought of like, why aren't doctors more involved in, in advocacy and policy? Um, and at Spaulding, along with the Disability Task Force, I think we wrote two or three letters. One was to, the Massachusetts State Legislature is on housing um, to increase more accessible housing for wheelchair users, as well as um, access to work spaces, not workplaces. Workplaces have to be accessible, uh, federal workplaces have to be accessible, but work spaces don't. For instance, the room where, like a little kitchen um, in, at your work, doesn't have to be accessible.
1: We recorded this episode on January 11th, and on February 17th, I received an email from the Department of Health and Human Services announcing that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released a proposal that would, for the first time, expand coverage for power seat elevation equipment on certain power wheelchairs. When we think about research and policy, we can be crushed by how slowly things seem to move. So we need these sorts of reminders that research, pursuit of knowledge, puts us on the path to positive change. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please know that liking, subscribing, and sharing is essential to sustaining our work. The Finding Strength production is a collaboration between the Rehabilitation Outcomes Center at Spalding and our model systems the Spalding-Harvard Traumatic Brain Injury Model System, the Boston-Harvard Burn Injury Model System, and the Spinal Cord Injury Model System, all funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. The material presented here is for general information purposes only.
2: Originally from Colombia, Actually, from the world capital of Salsa, Cali. Mm. Cali.
1: Mm-hmm. Salsa?
2: Salsa, you of dance? course. Yeah. <laughs> do you dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do, I do. There's actually, there is actually a, a couple good places here mm-hmm. to go dancing, Salsa. There's called, one called Habana mm-hmm. and La Fabrica, both in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Nice. They're, they're nice and, yeah, but but pretty much every, every Latin rhythm I like. Mm-hmm. Merengue, reggaeton, bachata.